I'm Emma Shortis. And I'm Chloe Ward. Welcome to the Barely Getting By podcast. This time on Barely Getting By, we are barely getting fiction. So last episode, we ended up by talking about George Orwell in in relation to understanding fascism. So we thought that in this episode, we'd pick up on that conversation and have a bit of a chat about political fiction and what it means to the present. And also, our last episode got pretty bleak, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, I, I may have walked out of the recording studio with a few tears in my eyes. Yeah, feeling feeling pretty down, I have to say. So this time we thought we'd liven things up by talking about 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. That sounds really soul-destroying. Yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of our MO at this point, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately it is, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to talk about about George Orwell. I think Emma has a few questions for me about George Orwell. I do. I am completely clueless about Orwell, I have to admit. But luckily for me, Chloe is not clueless about Orwell. Uh, Maybe. I wrote about him a lot in my PhD. So I, I I know a little bit about George Orwell. So we're going to talk that out. We're also going to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. And I've read The Handmaid's Tale. I've watched the first two seasons of the series. I haven't watched the third, and I have my reasons for that that I'll explain later. Um, And I guess my question for Emma is, why do I keep seeing people turning up at costume parties wearing the red robes from The Handmaid's Tale? And can that actually achieve anything politically? Yeah, it's a big question. I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer, but maybe we'll sort of grapple with that together. But I know you have a kind of special relationship with The Handmaid's Tale. Is that right? Yes. So when when Emma and I were putting together the plan for this, for this episode of the podcast, and we were talking about George Orwell and The Handmaid's Tale in very general terms, uh, my thoughts immediately turned to high school. And I think that's probably a fairly common experience for anyone who got to year 11, year 12, um, especially anyone who may have been a drama kid, one of those drama lit kids like myself. Yeah, and me. Yeah, yeah. So I started thinking about The Handmaid's Tale and I remembered being in year 11 and putting on as part of, for a drama assignment, putting on this incredibly earnest, incredibly bad one woman play starring my friend Angela who I will be wording up about this I'm telling her that she's you know guesting on the pod so I'm sorry and I'm sorry to expose this dark secret from our past um where my friend Angela was dressed up wearing a red sheet and basically monologuing from The Handmaid's Tale in this really serious way it was oh it was so bad yeah well I see you and I raise you a monologue about The Handmaid's Tale to a very deep and meaningful play about anorexia to the soundtrack of Anna's Song by Silverchair with no words, just feels. And I think a white sheet. Oh, okay. So I had the red sheet, you had the white sheet. Yeah, so. yeah we're basically the same person. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I mean, just flagging that, that might be a bit of a, that's a bit of one of the problems that we want to discuss today when we're talking about fiction and how people relate to fiction and what they can do with that in their political lives. Exactly. So so on that note, let us turn to Orwell. Now, I encounter Orwell fairly regularly because I'm kind of immersed in US politics. So I'm like in US poll Twitter all the time and, and Orwell is there constantly, right? And he, and he comes up on like kind of all ends of the political spectrum. So I did a quick search in prep for this episode 
just to kind of see what examples I could come up with. And it's actually quite amazing. So, like, okay, go on, go on. It goes from on the 30th of June, Anne Coulter, who is like this full alt right activist kind of Trump supporter, but also Trump critic from the right. Like Trump isn't right-wing enough for Ann Coulter. There are a lot of layers there. A lot. There's a lot going on, right? So she tweeted out an article about the Virgin Atlantic Pride flight. Like, so it's this a a flight marking the anniversary of the Stonewall riots. Like, it's celebrating, basically, celebrating Pride. And her tweet says, I get annoyed when the pilot talks, as in like it would be annoying to have drag queens on your plane. This is room 101 in Orwell's 1984, which like what even is that? That sounds a bit extreme. I can tell you that. Yeah, so first Orwell factlet. Room 101 is featured in 1984 and that's where Winston Smith goes to face his greatest fear. Um, towards the end of the novel. I won't spoil it. Um, room 101 is named Room 101 after one of the rooms in the BBC head, BBC's headquarters during the Second World War where George Orwell was working. Right, I see. So so in conclusion, Anne Coulter's greatest fear is drag queens on a plane. Or the BBC. Okay, maybe both. Right, so that's that's just one example. The next example I have is... Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, so as in Bernie Sanders running for the 2020 presidential nomination for the Democrats, he's a socialist, so presumably his campaign manager is also a socialist, uh, tweeting about the immigration rates in the US um, and and an operation targeting family, and that tweet says, family op, how Orwellian. Right, another example, I've got... um, a Daily Beast article, 2020 candidate Marianne Williamson, who's the kind of, I guess, fruit loop in the in the Democratic presidential candidates lineup. Um, she said that vaccine mandates are Orwellian. Do you know what? She might be right. So another another little fact about George Orwell. Um, one of the consistent themes in George Orwell's career and his personality was he had this kind of mistrust of modernity and including this kind of some weird views on modern medicine. Right. Okay. So so anti-vaxxers. I'm not calling George Orwell an anti. I'm not calling George Orwell an anti-vaxxer. Like, okay. He died. He died in 1950. Like. Yeah. Okay. But we, you can kind of see the appeal that Orwell might yeah, have maybe. to anti-vaxxers. Yeah, maybe, I guess. Maybe. Okay. So then. F- Final example out of many, it was really hard to choose these, is a tweet by at Eric R. Nolan one, who is, I don't know, somebody. Um, and it's a picture of the the footage of Trump meeting Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea in the demilitarized zone. And it's an Orwell quote. And it says, the creature outside looked from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But already it was impossible to say which was which. So that's, yeah, a very famous quote from Animal Farm, Um, highly quotable. I think one of the keys to understanding why George Orwell is so endlessly um, repeated and called upon today is that he was an incredible writer. Okay, so that's that's one of our starting points if we want to understand who George okay. Orwell was. But, I mean, like lots of people are in, incredible writers and they're not being quoted or invoked from people to like Ann Coulter to Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. Could you maybe explain for, for the uninitiated who kind of encounter Orwell in these weird ways but don't really, you know, get it? Like who who is this guy? Why is he everywhere? Okay, 
So George Orwell was an English essayist and novelist who was mostly writing in the 1930s through to the 1940s. He is best known for two books that he wrote towards the end of the Second World War and just after the Second World War, and they were Animal Farm and 1984. Okay, so Animal Farm is the like man-to-pig quote and 1984 is Anne Coulter's... Yep, that's right, flight. that's right. So what about... These are these are fiction books, but but they're political fiction. What what are Orwell's politics? Yeah. So the first thing that people should know about George Orwell, apart from the fact that he was a great writer, um, is that he was a socialist. And I am surprised at how frequently people seem to get mixed up on this point. Yeah, I don't reckon Anne Coulter knew it, knows he was a socialist. Yeah, Orwell was definitely a socialist. And I think you know, I think it is worth going into a bit of an explainer for that because socialism can mean all sorts of things, but. At the heart of what George Orwell wanted and what he was willing to call socialism was that he wanted to see the transfer of ownership of the means of production, so let's say industry, to the public, and he also wanted the abolition of private property. But there was a really big qualification on this, so he wasn't a socialist in the mould of, say, you know, his contemporaries, so the communists or Stalin. Um, he was a democrat. Okay, and he was very—he was very much—he was very democratic in his politics, and that I think is one of the points at which this confusion might start. Okay, so he's a democratic socialist, but I just want to, before we keep going, just pause for a moment and get you to explain how on earth you actually know so much about this guy. Because I so. I wrote a PhD about the British left in the 1930s and the 1940s. It's impossible to do that without at some point encountering George Orwell. So Orwell was in and around these political and literary circles on the left in the 30s and the 40s. He also went and fought in the Spanish Civil War, which was the inspiration for his book, Homage to Catalonia. Incredible book. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, So he was really part of that scene. But at the same time, he was also extremely unpopular within the left. Why? Well, so in the 1930s and the 1940s, large sections of the British left were kind of infatuated by communism and by Stalinism. And that was for several reasons. One was because they saw in communism the achievement of social equality um, and industrial development on a scale that that democracy hadn't delivered for them. And then also because they saw the Soviet Union, especially during the Second World War, as the only guarantor of peace and security and freedom in the world. George Orwell, on the other hand, was fiercely anti-Stalinist and anti-communist. And that goes back really to his experiences in the Spanish Civil War, where he witnessed the violent, um, the violent Soviet-backed repression of the independent socialist movement in Barcelona. He was also subject to a lot of persecution by the, by the Communist Party in, the, in, the, um, in Great Britain in the late 1930s. So he was vehemently anti-Stalinist. So, so am I right in thinking that one of his two most famous books, Animal Farm, is, is dealing with that directly? Yeah, that's right. So Animal Farm was written directly as a critique of the Soviet Union and what it was doing was looking at the Soviet Union from the period of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 through to the Second World War and it did so through this allegory of farmyard animals. So, for instance, the pigs, who you mentioned earlier, they are both the people who initiate the violent, this violent rebellion on the farm that represents the Bolshevik Revolution they are also the people who are responsible for its corruption. So they are the Stalinists in this allegorical story. Okay. Is, is it just a critique of Stalinism, though? Um, 
Not so much, which is why I thought it was really interesting that you raised that quotation about, you know, the pigs looking to the men and men looking to the pigs and not not being able to tell the difference. Um, it was also about the how towards the end of the Second World War, as Orwell saw it, um, both this corrupted this corrupted state was coming closer and more and more resembling the capitalist states that he also despised. So when he wrote that scene, which is the climactic scene in Animal Farm where the pigs, you know, so the pigs who've taken over the farm, they finally meet up with the with the human owners of rival farms. They get together, they're all having a great time, they all start to look they all start to look the same. That's meant to represent the Tehran conference. Which is so that was sorry. The Tehran conference was one of the conferences towards the end of the Second World War, where the Allies, so the USA, France, Britain, and the Soviet Union, got together to talk about how they were the world order that would follow the defeat of Nazism. Okay, so he's kind of Orwell at the end of Animal Farm. Then is is kind of saying everyone sucks. Okay, but it's not it's not actually Animal Farm. Like when I went through those tweets before, there was only really one tweet about Animal Farm. It's it's actually 1984 that gets the most attention. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's because a, in 1984, Orwell was successfully able to coin a lot of terms that have hung around in culture ever since. So, you know, Big Brother would be the best example. So Big Brother in 1984 is kind of the overlord of this society that has risen up out of the ashes of, of the Second World War, you know, so when Orwell was writing. Um to oversee this new state, and that famously was ripped off for the purposes of Big Brother, the TV show. Yeah, which is gross when you think about it. Yeah. So 1984, which Orwell wrote in 1948, see, see what he was doing there? <laughs> Very clever. Um, it is It's a general. It is, it is another critique of Stalinism, but it's also a general critique of what Orwell saw burgeoning in the world in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. It tells the story of Winston Smith, who's an ordinary citizen in a country called Oceania. Oceania is sort of roughly corresponds to what we know as the Anglosphere, so English-speaking countries and the British Empire. And Orwell's idea in this book, the premise of this book is that after the Second World War, Britain and the world basically descended into civil war. And by 1984, you have three competing nations that are all pitted against each other in this state of permanent warfare. And he's writing about Winston Smith and his everyday life and what grows into from, you know, very small acts of rebellion into a more concerted effort against the state in this, you know, totalitarian dystopic nightmare state of Oceania. Okay. So this is not, this is not just a critique of Stalinism, it's also a critique of British politics at the time. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yep, absolutely. So what people, when people cite 1984 as an example of totalitarianism, they usually, they usually, they're looking to that comparison with the Soviet Union, which was absolutely true. And that was one of George Orwell's inspirations for the book. But at the same time, he was also drawing on his own experiences in Britain. So before I mentioned that Room 101, which was quoted in one of those tweets you talked about earlier, was a room in the BBC. Orwell, when he was writing 1984, was also reflecting on his own experiences working for the BBC and working for the state during the Second World War and the distaste he had for mass government propaganda. Okay, so so I guess it, it's kind of obvious then when you when you look at the Stalinist critique, it's obvious why people on the right would invoke Orwell, people like Anne Coulter, because he's critiquing socialism and Stalinism. But why do you think 
people on the right still co-opt him, even though he's critiquing kind of, I guess, what we would call Western politics or, you know, when he himself is a socialist? I think that in part it's because there has been a very deliberate misreading of what George Orwell intended. It's partly also because of accident, an accident of circumstance, and it's also partly because I think people kind of take from books what they want to. So, for instance, um, if we're talking about like a deliberate misreading of Orwell, then one thing you probably don't know, do you, do you, when you were at school, did you, did you ever study Animal Farm or did you watch the animated version? I did not. Okay. So when I was at school, everyone was kind of forced to watch this 1954 animated version of Animal Farm, um, which I think, you know, it's pretty much a standard text in a lot of schools and has been ever since it was produced. Um, that was actually funded by the CIA. No. Yes. So, and if you watch it again, you can see that what was Orwell's general critique of the post-war state and where he thought things might lead, it's kind of tipped to, you know, it's tipped more heavily towards the specific critique of the Soviet Union that he was attempting. Yeah. That is amazing. I know. It's because of the deep state. <laughs> um, so the second, you know, the second reason I think that, that why people mistake Orwell's intentions is because it's an accident of circumstance. And so Orwell was very, very ill during the writing of 1984 and he died shortly after it was published. Um, so he saw these efforts going on at misappropriating his intentions um, for the book and he did actually, you know, he tried to defend his writing but he had very little opportunity to do so. And because he died in 1950, um, that meant that he could never really defend or he had no opportunity to write his own legacy. It was left in other people's hands, for instance, in the CIAs. <laughs> Which is kind of terrifying to think about. But I guess, you know, in, in the context of, of that, of the CIA interpretation, but also 1984 becoming it, this, this kind of a singular beast, I guess, do you think people are still right, like people from Ann Coulter to Bernie Sanders' campaign manager, are, are they right to suggest that we are, in fact, living in 1984? I don't think so. Um, so when people you, when people invoke Orwell and Big Brother and Oceania, they're talking about the surveillance state. And obviously it is true that we are more co more consistently surveilled. We do it ourselves through social media. We're incredibly attentive to what we're doing and how that will look. But Orwell didn't know about social media. What Orwell was talking about was state surveillance, so surveillance by the state. What I think we should be talking about today is, and I'm borrowing a term from a scholar called Shoshana Zuboff, who's recently written about this, um, what should, we should be talking about today is surveillance capitalism. So, for instance, the way that tech giants like Facebook um, are both harvesting and trading on information about us and how they are both monitoring us and encouraging us to monitor ourselves in increasingly closely. Okay. And, and Orwell didn't predict that? No. Orwell, oh, Orwell didn't predict Twitter. <laughs> Which is probably unfair of us to suggest that he should have, or not that I am suggesting that. So I guess then you would say it's kind of, you know, at times it's accurate to say something is Orwellian, but we're not actually living in 1984. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Within reason, yeah. Sometimes there are there are things going on that could certainly be described as Orwellian, um, but I think we always need to look deeper and go back to what Orwell originally meant. So yeah, I wouldn't say that we're living in 1984, but that leads to my question for you, which is: Are we living in Gilead? So the other day, I mean, I've, look, it's the same as those tweets that you were reading out before. 
we see references to the Handmaid's Tale and Gilead, which is the the dystopian state that people are living in um, in that book. We see references to it all the time. So I think it was the other, you know, a few days ago that we saw the Guardian, um, a Guardian headline that said, Handmaid's Tale comes to life in Alabama. Is this true? Is this is this what's happening? Yeah, that that was quite a headline and it was referring directly to some new um, extraordinarily conservative laws around abortion and women's reproductive rights and and in the in the light of that and a bunch of other stuff happening in the US we're seeing more and more of these headlines as you just said like handmaid's tale comes to the United States. So so the handmaid's tale is originally a book by Margaret Atwood who is a Canadian author. She's prolific writer of fiction, non-fiction, poetry, whatever you can think of basically. She's 79 now, um, but still having a, a huge influence on popular culture. And Handmaid's Tale, I think, like, I would think is her, probably her most famous book. Yeah, maybe. absolutely. But I'm just, you know, I mean, I'm actually thinking back to what I just asked you, which is, you know, is Gilead happening? And I think I'm so glad that you backtracked then because the second I said that, I thought that was a real white lady thing to say. Um <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Hammer's Tale, it's very easy to treat it as kind of a prescribed text and something that everyone should have read or has read. But really, Margaret Atwood is writing for a very small section of the, of the public, isn't she? Yeah, she she absolutely is. It's a white lady book. So so the Hammer's Tale is is she wrote it in the 1980s in in Berlin in the in the shadow of the Berlin Wall and it's set in a kind of dystopian US originally sort of in the 1980s and it is basically about white ladies. So essentially what's happened is there's been a coup in in the United States. And I I mean, in my mind, I always pictured it as like the Southern rednecks take over the white, Mm -hmm. the white rednecks take over women, women who are fertile, the the US is in the midst of a fertility crisis and no babies being born. We think for environmental reasons, because of pollution or whatever, it's not that clear, but women who are fertile or maybe fertile are basically enslaved and are raped by what's called commanders. And there's this whole kind of political structure that she, that Atwood creates, but it's, it's basically the, the story is centered around white ladies and what happens to white ladies in this kind of, I guess, fascist dictatorship. Okay. So, so it was written in the 1980s, but it's only recently been adapted into a TV show. Can you tell me, so, I mean, what you said before, you're suggesting to me that it was written by a white woman and it was very much about a white woman's perspective on this potential dystopia. Has that changed with, you know, I guess what, the 30, 40 years between writing the book and the TV show coming out? I, I think the answer to that is both yes and no. So in the book, race is is not really visible at all. The idea is that the the fascist takeover is done by segregationists, which is why I kind of picture them as like Atwood's version of redneck Southerners. And basically all the African-Americans, people of colour, are shipped out to a colony, kind of apartheid South Africa style. So in the book they're referred to as children of ham, but basically it's like one or two lines where race is dealt with and then it's completely in the background. In the show, they've made it, the show's producers and writers have made an explicit effort to deal with that. And they, they were kind of open about that saying, you know, this was written in the 1980s, they were segregationists, that's not appropriate for today. So race is visibly at least front and centre. So the main character, Offred's best friend Moira, is black and her husband is black. 
there are uh, there are even some black commanders. We we think um, so. So black men in position of power. There are Asian people in the show. So it's kind of race is visibly present, but it's not actually dealt with explicitly. It's and you know, and I have watched the first two seasons, and I guess what you're describing to me is a slightly weird dystopian fascist state, which obviously we talked about fascism last week. We're talking about a fascist regime that isn't racist. Yeah, which is is a kind of really bizarre thing to do. And I should say, like, we are far from the first people to have this discussion and we'll we'll put a lot of stuff in the show notes, you know, people who have written about this and been writing about this for some time. But basically what the show's creators have said is that because there's this fertility crisis, racism kind of takes a backseat because everybody's so worried about population, they decide kind of not to be racist or that, that race doesn't matter as much because they're more worried about having babies. So the show's creator kind of said racism, oh, sorry, fertility trumps racism which is an interesting choice of words, but there you go. I guess, I mean, that leads me to my next question is, so people are talking about how, you know, the US is now descending into Gilead. Can that possibly be true if, you know, if what we're talking about in the the TV adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale is kind of a um, kind of a colourblind dictatorship? Yeah, exactly. Like they're kind of suggesting that this there's a fascist regime, as you said, that that's not racist. And it's this kind of weird expression of like Barack Obama's post-racial America. I think it's worth emphasising that Handmaids is, an, is not the only show that's doing this. So I was really struck, I'm kind of outing myself here, but um, by the new Star Trek. Are you a Star Trek fan? Well... I'm kind of, I'm fairly new to it and I'm really enjoying this new, the new iteration. But the, the similar things happened in this series, right? So they in, I hope I'm not giving too much away, but basically, you know, the characters in Star Trek basically make their way into an alternate universe where something called the Terran Empire has emerged. So it's like an empire of all humanity and of Earth that has emerged in order to combat alien threats to combat alien races. And it's a similar idea to, to the creators of Handmaid in that this because this outside existential threat has come from other species, racism sort of disappeared internally. So there's no internal hierarchy. So the emperor of the Terran Empire is an Asian woman and her kind of two IC is a black woman, which is really interesting because, again, it's this idea of kind of post-racial society but in a fascist regime – that's, yeah, I, look, I mean, that's all really interesting, but I actually want to go back to this. We've been friends for a very long time. We planned this show together, and I did not know you were a Star Trek fan. You don't know everything about me. Okay, well, look, you know, here's, here's one, another point of difference for, for, you know, two people who are generally pretty similar. Um, okay, yeah, so I guess what, we, what we're really talking about is that there is a big problem in presenting any sort of repressive, fascist or authoritarian regime as equal opportunity, right? Exactly. You know, it doesn't... I mean, I guess we should say, like, this is this is fiction, obviously. Like, it doesn't have to be real. But when it's purporting to, to reflect on our current situation, which Handmaid's explicitly is, you know, kind of reflecting on the Trump era and, and Atwood is reflecting on American politics, I think, you know, and again, we're not the first people to do this, you have to kind of call it out and just go, well, that's kind of ridiculous and, and also incredibly offensive because... 
it's kind of suggesting that this stuff, particularly in handmaids, you know, it's really terrifying when it happens to white ladies, but in fact has been happening to other people for a long, long time. So to suggest that handmaids has arrived in America, as, as The Guardian did in that article, is to kind of dismiss reality. Yeah, and to, and to dismiss that elements of The Handmaid's Tale have been alive in America for a very long time, i.e. its entire history. And I guess, you know, I mean, that that brings to mind, I've, I said earlier that I watched the first two seasons of The Handmaid's, of the Handmaid's Tale and I haven't watched the third. And that is it's for that same reason that you were describing about how, you know, a show that purports to represent reality, then it should, if it's going to claim to represent reality, then it should represent reality. And I have to say... I got to the point with The Handmaid's Tale where I found it kind of offensive on a on an aesthetic level. How, so, sorry, how do you mean? I'm, I'm still catching up with the, the end of the series. Okay, so, you know, a lot of people talk about, a lot of reviews of The Handmaid's Tale talk about the beautiful colour palette and how striking it is that you have these women who are wearing green or bright red or bright blue. I find it deeply distasteful to render what is effectively a an authoritarian regime, I think that if you're claiming to represent reality, then you have to represent it as it is. Don't dress it up in beautiful costumes and gorgeous set design. I just, it really turned me off the show. And then the other thing that I find really problematic about it is that it's kind of, it's kind of violence porn. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's it's gone beyond the point where it's using violence, especially sexual violence, to make a salient point about this world and also about our times, to the point where it's just punishing the audience. I mean, the world is bleak enough. I don't need Handmaid's Tale to make me feel worse about that. I have a whole podcast to make me feel bad about the world. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a pretty good job of that. And and anyway, I would say Peggy Olsen is the real hero. Peggy Olsen? Mad Men? Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss character in Mad Men. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Elizabeth Moss, who plays Offred in The Handmaid's Tale, she was also Zoe Bartlett in The West Wing. She was too. Yeah. Okay, but we're not going to talk about the uh, sorkinization of American politics. Aren't we? No, I, I think if you want to talk about that, you should probably listen to Pod Save America or something like that. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I would say, though, is that it's really interesting that Handmaids has has taken such a kind of canonical place in popular culture at the moment because I actually think that Atwood's climate fiction is far better than Handmaid's Tale. So her more recent books like Oryx and Crake and Mad Adam, which are really interesting reflections on dystopia and, and climate change and politics that are much more nuanced. Yeah. So conclusion is, Margaret Atwood, we still love you. Yeah, with qualification. I think. Okay. <laughs> we are white ladies after all. Speaking of being white and middle class, can we talk about Harry Potter? We can always talk about Harry Potter. Okay. So I'm going to out myself the way that Emma outed herself as a Star Trek fan just before. I was a massive Harry Potter nerd growing up. There were costumes involved. I'm not ashamed. Still not putting them in the show notes. <laughs> um, but I guess... I've, over the years since the last Harry Potter book was released in 2007, I've had cause to think about, I guess, you know, what was actually problematic in the wizarding world, which I think when we were children, we definitely saw as kind of progressive and well-intentioned, you know, JK Rowling was playing with a whole allegory about Hitler um, in the fight against Voldemort. 
I've sort of rethought that, and that's been ever since Emma and I went and saw The Cursed Child. The Cursed Child is obviously the um, Harry Potter play, which is currently playing in Melbourne. I'm not going to reveal any spoilers about the show, but what I will say is that we walked out of that play and we thought it kind of sucked. It definitely sucked. I mean, the first the first instalment was okay, but the second one went downhill pretty fast and we came out of it, I, I have to say, kind of outraged. Yeah, why was that? Well, look, for me, it's a bit like, you know, all this excellent writing that we'll put include in the show notes about Atwood and race. When it comes to JK, I think it's it's the homophobia that that wasn't obvious then but became kind of unavoidable in The Cursed Child. Yeah. So, again, like we don't want to spoil any of it, but, but one of the main characters in this show is like incredibly camp but is – and and seems like should be in a relationship with his best friend, but is is not gay in the show. And in fact, it kind of implies that like closeted gay men are abusive towards women. So I I found it incredibly homophobic, and and it was really kind of you know heartbreaking. Like JK seems to keep breaking our hearts by trying to ret- retrospectively be good or say things about the books and how progressive they were when on reflection, they weren't really. Like, is that how you yeah, see it? Yeah, I know. And I, I look, I remember when after the last book came out, JK Rowling copped a lot of flack because at one of, at one of her press events afterwards, she said, she said publicly that Dumbledore was gay. And at the time, some people said, to, said, oh, yeah, that was really brave of you, J.K. Rowling, you know, to out your character. A lot of people said, well, actually, maybe it wasn't so brave. Maybe you should have just written him as gay from the start. Exactly. And I think especially when we're talking about Cursed Child, which is very recent, and I think, you know, in this particular political moment, it would have been so easy for her to write a character who was gay. Like, it would have got her so many brownie points, and she still couldn't do it. And and that made it kind of extra disappointing in the in the same way that Atwood is so disappointing on race in this latest iteration of Handmaid's Tale, because it's not taking those brave steps. It's not interrogating things in the way that we you know, the way that those authors think they're interrogating things. Yeah. Okay, so Chloe, now that we've had this like reckoning with all with our childhood books that we've grown up with and we've decided that they're none of them are good and they're all terrible and things, I, I'm still gonna ask you, you know, people people obviously think that fiction has something to say. You know, people wouldn't be dressing up in handmaid's costumes and protesting at the Supreme Court if they didn't feel like it had something to say about our current politics. Like, does does fiction matter? Does Do books matter? I think fiction can matter, but it doesn't matter in the way that a lot of people think it does. So, for example, a couple of years ago, a couple of studies came out that claimed to show that children who read Harry Potter grew up to be more progressive and empathetic. There were some pretty big methodological problems with this study. And, you know, to summarise them quickly, the first was that this study was based on a very directive reading of the books. So in in this study, one group of children were given selected quotes that were aimed at a very a very a very inclusive reading the other were um given given quotes that were more neutral or even you know kind of on the side of Voldemort which isn't the problem with that methodologically is that that doesn't reflect the way that people actually read 
Okay, people read things. You know, people read books in their totality. They don't. They don't read excerpted quotes. They also read in a social context. You know, and in the context of parental influence and cultural influence through the lens of the privilege of their class or their race. And I think it's really naive to think that a book alone is sufficient to inculcate a child in progressive values. There's all sorts of other things going on around that child. But I, I mean, I guess it's. It's reassuring to tell ourselves that if we, if we read widely, if we, you know, if we're highly educated, then we're we're just naturally going to be more progressive and more empathetic. It's reassuring. It's also kind of egotistical, to be honest. Oh, massively so. And I think it kind of taps in directly to something we, we'll talk about a bit, which is a kind of smug liberalism that is sort of partly responsible for getting us into the political situation that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's both naive and it is it's pretty arrogant to think that because you are reading you know because you you're reading books like Harry Potter, you're reading The Handmaid's Tale that you're in some way more enlightened um and also that you're a person who's going to change things. But I I mean I think that that view as as problematic as, as it is, is really widespread. Like I, it comes to mind that just, you know, a week or two ago, a very senior colleague of mine, we were talking about Boris Johnson um, to go back to our episode last week. And I, you know, I sort of said something about Johnson and Trump and his response was, well, the British public are much better educated than the Americans. So I don't think they're likely to vote for Boris Johnson. To like which, what? Yeah, I think, I mean, so we've talked already about people who are reading self-consciously progressive books and how that in itself isn't a guarantee that they either will have great politics or that they're going to act on them. I think that broader point that education and literacy means people aren't going to make stupid political decisions, I think that is incredibly naive. I mean, like... Last week, I kind of I suggested that there've been a lot of really good words by very educated people that have been wasted on not understanding Donald Trump. I think literacy isn't a guarantor that people are going to have good politics. Yeah, exactly. Like Jordan Peterson called, and he wanted to remind you that he's got a doctorate. Okay, having said that, though, we do love books. We do, and I'm going to put a big qualification on what I've just said, and and you know, and say that yeah, sometimes books can absolutely move people to political action, but it's not going to be because you read the book; it's because you chose to take that action. And like, it might be a little bit unfair and catty of me to say, but I would I would venture maybe that that action is more than just like putting on a red cape and a white hood. Look, I think that is both catty. And entirely fair. And this is something that we're going to take up in the next episode of the Barely Getting By podcast when we talk about feminism. So I'm quite, look, I'm going to acknowledge it here. I am a white, middle-class, cisgendered woman. both are. I have my, my views on feminism, but I have also been through, I've learned a lot in the last few years and I've learned a lot from from women who actually are more marginalised than me, who do face more important material struggles and more struggles against injustice than I do as someone who's incredibly, incredibly privileged in this world. And that's what we want to talk about next week is what does feminism look like today and how can people like us be good allies 
in the fight against the patriarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes goes to the heart, I think, of the motivations of why we started the Barely Getting By podcast in the first place is to interrogate that white lady feminism that I think, you know, we've both been guilty of and in, in an effort to, to really kind of push back against that and push back against those lone tendencies in ourselves. So we, we hope you will join us for another lighthearted conversation by the sounds of it, Chloe. Oh, I, I reckon we'll be able to sneak a few Dolly Parton references in there. I think we probably have to. So we hope you'll tune in, if only for the Dolly references. Thanks for listening to the Barely Getting By podcast. Thank you.